We are in a perfect storm when it comes to individual disability insurance. There has never been a better time to be offering disability insurance solutions to your clients. Consider that there are an unlimited amount of prospects. There is virtually no competition. Products are better than ever, and compensation is at an all-time high. Doesn't that sound like a business opportunity in which you want to be involved? But there is no easy button to push. You still have to put in the work to have conversations with prospects and clients about the importance of protecting their income and their business. The DI Guys Podcast was created to share the best ideas, strategies, and concepts so you can have these conversations to help you exponentially grow your DI sales. While they may have lost their hair, they have not lost their minds. Here are the DI guys, Chris Carlson and Mike Cogdo. This is Chris Carlson, and welcome to this episode of the DI Guys podcast. We hope you had the opportunity to join us for the 2020 DI Summit. It was an amazing event with great presentations. In this episode, we want to replay Erwin Cohen's presentation. Erwin is a phenomenal DI producer, and he shared some great ideas. We hope you enjoyed the replay. Now, I would like next to introduce, in this new format we have, a dear friend of mine that goes back probably 30 years, back in the Chicago days. Erwin Cohen has been in this business longer than me. He is one of the most stellar professionals I have ever met, understood the need for this particular product for many, many, many years continues. He also is like me. He's got a little bit of a younger family, so he's probably going to work for a very long time. Social security doesn't seem to be of interest to either one of us anytime soon, and he's going to continue to work. He's had a wildly successful career. He's been in more than one or two markets in his career. He's never stopped working, never stopped being passionate and believing in disability insurance and the importance. And with that, I'd like to turn this video screen over to my dear friend, Erwin Cohen, for the next 40 minutes or so. Erwin, thank you for joining us this morning. Hey, thank you, Mike. Am I coming through clear, everybody? Very clear, thank you. Mike and Chris and everyone else involved in putting this together, thank you. Um, some of you tuning in who are in the disability industry might share the idea that this is a lonely existence there's not a lot of us who do this. So, uh, Mike, you're frozen on my screen. Are you hearing me? Erwin, we're hearing you just fine. Okay. Erwin, I hear you just fine. Okay. You're so, good, Erwin. You're, you're live. You know what's amazing is uh, on the occasions I speak, I spend months writing my speech. I can never sleep the night before. I get nervous before the speech. And then the speech, what I talk about and what I think I'm going to talk about always turns out to be different. So I have a lot on my agenda that I'd like to cover. And I always like to start with why I got in this business. And by the way, the title, How to Prospect, I asked Mike what he wants to talk about. That's the title he gave it. I don't know that that's what I'm going to talk about. But my goal is that everyone listening comes away with something that's going to impact their life and their clients' lives for the better. So 1977, I started the insurance business, and my goal was to make money. Um, 
Cogdell and I both had hair back then. I had a shag haircut and thought I was hot stuff. So I got in the business to make money and in no time at all, I found out about the levels of competence and where I fit on the grid. So the levels of competence look like this. Unconscious incompetence, you're not good, you don't know you're not good. Conscious incompetence, you evolve to the painful place of understanding you really don't know what you're doing. Unconscious competence, you're good, but you don't know why in the pinnacle. Conscious competence, you can put the ball in the hoop every time. The Michael Jordans, Muhammad Ali's, Tiger Woods of the world. So about a year or two into my career, I went from being an unconscious incompetent to a conscious incompetent, really understanding that I didn't know what I was doing. And it was a very painful place to be. Muhammad Ali is one of my life heroes, and I took a page from his book. By the way, if you haven't seen the movie, When We Were Kings, it's a documentary about Ali getting his title back from George Foreman. Inspirational, a lot of insight into how to, to put gas in your tank. So Muhammad Ali decided the only thing he had to do to get his title back was be willing to suffer every day with more rounds, more sparring, more road work, more medicine ball. And if you watch the movie, When We Were Kings, Muhammad Ali defeats George Foreman. He gets his title back. So the page I take from Muhammad Ali's book is, if I'm willing to suffer every day, um, I can get out of this miserable business. I call people and they disappear into the witness protection program. Um, before the days of caller ID, I get their voicemail. They don't call me back. I come to appointments and knock on their door. They shut the lights. They don't answer. So at age 30, I set a goal, and the goal was not to be in this business. The goal was to get out of it by the time I was 40, that I would save enough money from age 30 to age 40. At age 40, I could get out of here. And I took the page from Ali's book to suffer every day and make more phone calls than anybody. And I did this, and by the time age 40 came around, I had gotten really good. I didn't want to get out of the business anymore. So I evolved to being a conscious competent. Now, what does that look like? Usually the gifts that we can get in life are disguised. So most of us in this industry tell ourselves a lot of lies. Um, 1977, when I started, we did not have websites. We didn't have social media. We didn't have texting. There were a lot fewer places to hide out. But I would suggest to you that most of you will tell yourself anything to avoid picking up the phone and making a call. So the first thing I'd like to impart on you today is I want to change how you look at rejection. Um, I had a bumper sticker printed up once. I like to say I had a dream one night that I was walking down Michigan Avenue and people had a bumper sticker on their car that said honk if you said no to Erwin Cohn. And I actually had the bumper sticker printed up. It sits on my shelf here. And here's where I'm going with this. Most of us set a goal of wanting to hear the word yes. We're looking for someone to say, Erwin, I'm interested. Come on over. Write me up. I'd like you to change your goal for yeses. I'd like to ask you if you'd be willing to go on a journey with me and make a goal every Monday morning that you don't leave the house or now um, you don't get on the web and do Zoom until 100 people tell you no. Now, most of you are not willing to do this. Most of you are not looking for that kind of rejection. I will tell you a hundred no's to start the week will lead to success beyond your wildest imagination. Because at any given moment in space and time, there's people out there that aren't going to give you a time of day 
and there's people that are looking to get you to do business with you and embrace you. But the problem is we're hiding from rejection. I want you to get out and get in the game and endure rejection, welcome injection, rejection, um, instead of hiding from it. If you can change the way you think about rejection, you can increase the amount of business you do. Throughout my talk today, I'm going to give you some of my favorite resources. On Audible, you will find an author named Arthur Mortell, M-O-R-T-E-L-L, How to Thrive on Stress and Failure and Rejection. It's a very inexpensive speech by Arthur Mortell. I've listened to it thousands of times. I'd love all of you to go check it out, embrace it, apply it. It'll change your life. So the first point I want to make is the way you become successful is by helping more people. And the way you're going to help more people is by getting more no's. Um, you can set the goal at 100. You can set it lower and work up to a higher number. But I want you to learn to love the word no. Um, one of my beliefs in life is I never see failure and rejection is failure and rejection. I only see it as the game I have to play to win. So I want you to learn to embrace failure and rejection. Now, I want to talk about how you can achieve your goals. I get up at night, in the middle of the night sometimes, and I try to reflect on and make notes about how I can get where I want to go. And the other night, I wrote something that I'm going to share with you. Now, the way you're going to achieve goals is by desire. Without desire, your goals have no meaning. They have no substance. Everything starts with desire. But desire without action is worthless. Thought without action is worthless. So here's what I wrote the other night. Desire is the only place one may begin. How to write multiple millions of premium each year. Thought by itself will not produce premium. Actions without the, comp the application of consciousness directed to write business will not meet with great success. One must possess the combination of both. However, massive action is what is needed to generate massive premium and economic wealth. We agree that our consciousness is to speak from the heart with the focus on helping people. So set the consciousness and engage. Now's the time for action. The insight I impart on myself tonight is action trumps thinking. When in doubt, act. Act, mean, <clears throat> act means make phone calls now. Do the thinking later, but pick up the phone now. So I want to challenge you to do massive action. One of my learning experiences with the pandemic looks like this. My normal day, make a couple hours of phone calls and then go out and do face-to-face -face meetings. I work downtown with professionals. So a normal day, on a good day, I could see six, maybe eight people. One of the gifts of the pandemic is I can now have 15 or 20 conversations, meaningful conversations with potential clients every day. So the opportunity for me to do more business is better than it's ever been. If someone told me 60 days ago, I could work over Zoom, I could work over the web, I could work over the phone and increase my business, there's no way I would have bought into it. But I think the pandemic represents a tremendous opportunity I think it's the second coming of the perfect storm. And here's what this looks like. Eight weeks ago, I'm having a conversation with a client. Here's what the conversation is. Erwin, my law firm is paying me well. My compensation's incredible. It's going up. I'm getting bonuses. 
the market's going crazy. I'm going to have more money to know what to do with. And I'm so healthy. What could ever happen to me? It's a conversation with the same lawyer the other day. Uh, Erwin, guess what? They cut my comp 20%. Bonuses are off the table. Um, my portfolio is not doing well. It looks like I'm going to have to work longer and harder to get where I'm going. And uh, now I get um, I could be vulnerable. What would happen to me if I got sick or hurt? So where I'm going with this is because of what's happened in the world, most of us are going to have to work maybe a little harder, maybe a little longer. And in that, there's never been a more important time to make sure our financial foundation is in order. So confidence that this guy had eight weeks ago has opened the gates for me to say, look, let's make sure your protection plan, as Michael would say, is in order. Your income protection is now more important than it's ever been, along with the other things. So I think the pandemic gives us the following opportunity. People get that they're vulnerable. People get that their income has been affected, their portfolio has been affected, and they might be more willing to listen. Now, it's going to take more finesse and more traction on your part to connect with them and get them to act because they might be afraid to spend money. So we talked about goals. We talked about desire. We talked about becoming a conscious competent. I think the pandemic is an opportunity if you choose it to be. Um, somebody I'm very fond of is the late W. Clement Stone and the late Napoleon Hill. Stone and Hill said the following, what the mind of man can conceive and believe, the mind of man can achieve. And what we think about is what we accomplish. So right now, if you're sitting back in the pandemic thinking everybody's losing their job, people are canceling their policies, I'm out of business, I'll suffer, you're right. If you're sitting back saying, this is an opportunity for me, I can work from my home base, I can reach out to more people, I can influence more people, I can protect more people, I have more work to do, and I'm going to be more successful than ever. Whichever side of that equation you're on, you're right. What you think about is what's going to happen. When the pandemic first hit, and I realized I couldn't go be in front of people, I reflected as follows. I thought for a few minutes, well, I can get rid of my handful of staff. I can scale back whatever excess expenses we have. And economically, because of renewal income, we'll be okay. And I felt fear for just a moment. And then I refocused and I said, wait a second. The people that work for me expect to get paid and depend on me. The clients I serve depend on me to help them get protected. The people in the home offices who get paid to process my business need me to generate revenue. So I decided to make a commitment to take the pandemic and use it as an opportunity and to increase production and do more business than ever. And I said to my wife, if this doesn't work, it won't be because I didn't give it everything I've got. And so far, we're tracking to increase and do more. It's turning out to me for me to be a gift. I don't wish the pandemic on anybody. That's not where I'm going. But we can create the confidence in our relationships and be the boost and point people in the right direction. So I think there's an opportunity here. 
Now I want to talk about disability insurance since this is a disability conference. And I want to impart on you that product and premium have nothing at all to do with buying disability insurance. Let that sink in a moment. The price of the product and the technicalities, the language in the product have nothing to do with someone purchasing coverage. Here's what I mean. People buy emotionally and then they defend their decision with logic. Let me give you two examples of how not to do it and how to do it. I'll use Cogdill as an example. He's a lawyer working at a law firm. He's got group disability. He makes 200,000. And I go like this, Mike, you make 200,000. You take home 12 grand a month. If you're disabled, your group plan only gives you 60%. You've got a 40% loss for $100 a month. We can fill that gap. This is void of emotion. It's all about logic and reason. By the way, Disability does not adhere to logic and reason. Yesterday, I'm on the phone with a client, potential client, and um, he's very logical and strategic in his thinking. And he says, uh, my wife and I think this is important, but we'll plug it in later on when we have children. So last night, I was thinking about his train of thought, and I'm going to come back to product, but this ties right in. Disability insurance is not a purchase that you're, you're placing in a logical sequential order that you believe makes logical um, sense. Disability does not have a logical sequence. Disability happens. It's not logical. We can't plan when we get disabled. So someone who plans to buy disability insurance when they think it's right, we're caught up in that logical world. So the example I just gave with Michael about here's percentages, that's not where it's at. Here's what it looks like. It's not about product. The question becomes, who would need to take care of Cogdill if he were disabled? Is his marriage strong enough to withstand disability? What financial goals will his loved ones sacrifice if he's disabled? Is it college for his children? Is it helping support his elderly parents? Is it giving charitable contributions? Is it creating a retirement plan so he and his spouse can enjoy the fruits of their labor sometime? Will his spouse have to stop working to care for him if they're disabled, if he's disabled? Let me give you true life example. I'm reading from a publication called the Chicago Den Review from a publication in January 1994. I was on my way to a study club meeting downtown heading east on Chicago Avenue when the next thing I knew I was slowly awaking from a coma. I was wondering why I didn't have any hair. I was wondering, why can't I move my right side? Why can't I talk? My husband was explaining to me that I was shot in the head. Ladies and gentlemen, October 14th, 1992, my client, Rebecca Egoff, 
and I'm not breaching any confidence. This is all on the web. October 14th, 1992, 5.30 in the afternoon in broad daylight at Chicago and Damon Avenue as she was on her way to a study group. A 16-year-old young guy across the street was on his way to do some damage. And the bullet he shot at rival gang members missed them, went through the glass of her Volvo, and landed in her brain where it still resides. She's been collecting benefits since 1992. Her husband, Dennis, had to change careers to work out of the house, care for her, and raise Eva, who was 12 years old at the time. Now, let me ask a question. Do you think she got up that morning um, and said, today will be a good day to get shot in the head? This changed their lives. Some years ago, I was sitting with her and Dennis reviewing their coverage, and I wanted to know, did this have any deeper meaning for her? And guess what the answer is? I don't have to tell you. It didn't have any deeper meaning. So disability is not logical and sequential, and it's not about the product. If you Google, suddenly I couldn't move. You're going to find the story of a woman, pardon me, a man named Joel Heifetz, H-E-I-F-I-T-Z. Forbes has an article about Joel because he is planning on proving to the doctors that he's going to walk again. The article tells us in some years ago, 2004, Joel and his family and two other families vacationing in the Gulf of Mexico. The water gets rough. Joel goes in to tell everyone to get out, but he gets slammed by a wave. It breaks his neck. Joel had disability insurance. And Joel also got divorced. Why am I bringing up Cogdill's marriage? Will it withstand disability? Joel Heifetz is divorced. Share the story of a client of mine named Jimmy. Jimmy is the managing partner of a family law firm here in Chicago. Several years ago, I call on Jimmy to buy disability insurance. And I cannot persuade him. I fail. Two years ago, he calls me. He wants to buy coverage. I say to him on the phone, I know, Jimmy, you're calling me because your health has changed. You've had a stroke or heart attack. You're diabetic. You've had a TIA. Tell me you're calling me now because your health has changed, and I will hang up the phone on you. I'm sure that's the case, right? When do people call us back? When it's too late. But Jimmy says, Irwin, I'm actually healthier than when I met you a few years back. Come write me some coverage. And when you come down, I will share my epiphany, my epiphany that's going to help you write business. What is Jimmy's epiphany? Jimmy is 59 years old at the time we meet. He's happily married to his second wife. And here's what he says. He notices in his divorce practice that the number of disabled clients are threefold, triple the number of married clients who are divorcing someone who is healthy. And he says to me, I realize why people who are disabled get divorced. If you're happily married, on any given day, you might have a disagreement with your spouse about any number of things. Money management, intimacy, socialization, who you're hanging out with, whose turn it is to take out the garbage, who's supposed to clean up the yard, all kinds of interaction between husband and wife in the best of marriages. He said, when you're divorced, 
You have these stresses every day and the burden falls on the healthy spouse. It's not about the product. It's not about the price. You have to be able to make an emotional connection with your customer as to the ramifications of what happens when someone's disabled. If I can't get you connecting to this pain, to this risk for your loved ones, the price of the product is irrelevant. I will be talking to myself. Some of the people on the line here will relate to the disability industry prior to 1993. We had 600 carriers. Every month, a new carrier came out with an improvement in the product. We would go call on clients and we would beat each other up over who has the better language. Ladies and gentlemen, those days are pretty much gone. The products today are more similar than they are different. The carriers will deliver the goods. It's about getting the client emotionally involved, getting them to connect with their loved ones at risk. And then the price doesn't matter. They'll still apply Cogdill's units. They're still going to buy it within the scope of their budget, but they're going to want to buy it because they get that their family's at risk. Here's the illusion that your clients are dealing with, and here's how you have to pierce the veil. There's four objections why someone doesn't do business with you. No money, no need, no hurry, no credibility. Credibility is something you have to establish by your professionalism, by doing the things you say you're going to do, by asking the right questions. So credibility is up to you. No money. You need to market to people who have the money. The difference between someone who has no money saying no is the same as someone who has money saying no. But someone who has money can buy what you're offering if they like what you're about. So you have to deal with credibility by being professional. You have to be calling on people who can spend the money if you make a strong case. That leaves no need and no hurry. You have to be able to articulate and get them emotionally involved. I like to say there's one of three things that can happen if you're disabled. The worst, the best, and the midpoint that you don't think about. The best thing that can happen is 20 years from now, you're independently wealthy. You call me to your retirement party, and as I arrive at the cocktail reception, you take me aside and chew me out for having wasted your $3,000 a year for the last 20 years, and I'll say guilty is charged, but the $3,000 I wasted has not changed your life. Worse extreme, you're disabled. Recent conversations I had last year with two of my clients. One of my clients was three days from death last year when she had a liver transplant. She has cirrhosis of the liver. Profound, she is not alcoholic. For many, many years, she and her husband shared a bottle of wine at dinner when she went into sudden liver failure. It turns out she has got a genetically weak liver. She is on claim with a liver transplant. Contrary to her wish to return to work, 
her mind no longer functions the way it used to. She called me up to thank me. She actually wanted to send Melissa and I on a cruise, which I thanked her for, but said, no, thank you, because she feels a debt of gratitude to me. She said to me, when you called on me, you twisted my arm, you coerced me, you pushed me, but I did it. And thank God I did it. And she said, you know, you said to me that practicing law is a game of concentration. She said, these were your words. Nobody would refute the ability of a great athlete is the ability to concentrate. Erwin, you said practicing law is the same as being an athlete. I must be able to concentrate. So I kind of dismissed that. And then my liver transplant was done. And I said to my doctor, can't wait to go back to work. And he said, not going to happen. I said, I feel pretty good. He said, what you don't realize is your mind no longer works the way it does. It did in the past. So I dismissed him and I went back to work and I tried to send some emails. And guess what? I couldn't focus. I think, thank God for my disability insurance. I'm never going to practice law again. Another conversation I had with a client, 62-year-old anesthesiologist, he went blind. We call that a problem. Called me up and thanked me. And he said to me, you know, I beat up on you when you sold me the policy. He was, he was further moved when he found out he is presumptively disabled. He will get paid for the rest of his life. So people don't think they're going to get disabled. How do we get traction with them? You have to be able to connect the emotional issues. You have to be able to talk about stories that you've been through with your clients. Now, I started by saying one or two extremes. What we hope for, you don't get disabled. The worst is you get disabled. But what about the equivalent of a toothache in my business? What does that mean? I say to my person I'm talking to, Chris, have you ever had a toothache? Yes. How bad on a scale of one to 10? 10. And when the toothache got to 10, did you want to see the dentist? Yes. Could you focus on your work? No. What am I talking about? You're either disabled or you're not. Not true. What if you wake up uninsurable? I often get calls, as you do, from clients. Now their motivation is their health has changed. They want to buy coverage, but it's too late. So the worst, the best, and the probable. You're much more likely to become uninsurable than you are to become disabled. And we need to address all three, and that's where insurability comes in. I want to comment briefly on what I call the great divide. Some of you have heard me talk in the past about the issues revolving around collecting on a group disability policy. I'm not disparaging any carriers here, and I'm not disparaging the decisions employers make on their employee benefit plans. I'm referring to a federal law passed in 1974 called ERISA. In 1974, the federal government passed ERISA. The intention of ERISA was to eliminate the ability of employers to discriminate with employee benefits. Under ERISA, any disagreement you have with the provider is handled with administrative appeal. When you tell a disability carrier on the group side 
If they don't pay a claim, there's no day in court, there's no judge and jury, there's no bad faith, there's no punitive damages. It's administrative appeal. Ladies and gentlemen, you do not create an environment where a carrier is motivated to pay a disability claim. Now, you never ever want to knock a carrier or a, another advisor or say anything negative about anybody in your presentation. My point to you is group disability with ERISA is a parachute put together by the lowest bidder that doesn't open when you jump out of the plane. And ladies and gentlemen, when you jump out of the plane, you can't crawl back in. Your fate is sealed. So how do I present this issue? The great divide. There's a different standard when you're filing a claim on your group plan as opposed to your individual plan. And I'm addressing this because a lot of people have group disability, their financial advisors, their HR department, their buddy or, or girlfriend at the social event said, you got coverage, you don't need to worry. It's not true. It's substance versus form. We have a form of coverage in the disability plan at the company, but it's not going to deliver the goods. Here's what happens on a group disability plan if your claim is denied. You have the right to an appeal. If your appeal is denied, you have the right to a second appeal. If both your appeals are denied, your lawyer can go here in Illinois to what's called the Seventh Circuit and have a visit with the administrative law judge. But get this, the visit to the administrative law judge is not about are you disabled, it's can your lawyer establish to the administrative law judge that your denial was arbitrary and capricious. In other words, can your lawyer prove to the administrative law judge that they denied your claim different than they denied someone else's? So the great divide, <clears throat> group disability protected by ERISA, <clears throat> individual policies not protected by ERISA, group disability, definition of disability, the inability to do something you may be fit for based on your education, training, and experience, individual disability, can't do your own occupation, doesn't matter what else you do, we're going to pay your benefit. Group disability reduced by Social Security and workers' comp. If you are bad enough off to get Social Security disability, you need all the money you can get your hands on. It's not a time you want a reduction. Individual disability, no reduction for Social Security. Group disability, flat benefit, no inflation increases. Individual disability, inflation proof to three or 6%, depending on how we designed it. Group disability, flat benefit based on last year's income. If last year's income was less, you're gonna get less forevermore. Individual disability, guaranteed benefit based on what it said when we wrote the policy, even if your income is down. Group disability, not portable. Lose your job, lose your coverage, there is no COBRA. Individual disability owned by you, controlled by you, paid by you, will be with you as long as you pay the premium. Group disability is divine, designed by HR for the masses. We can drill down on the individual side, make the plan what you need it to be. Now I wanna wrap up with a couple thoughts. I want to give you what I call the instant interview. The instant interview is how to have a closing 
disability interview with anybody instantaneously. If Mike Cogdill was sitting next to me right now, or Eugene Cohn was sitting next to me right now, all I have to do is look him in the eye and say, Eugene, Michael, why don't you want to buy any disability insurance from me? Why don't you want to buy some disability insurance from me? It doesn't matter what we say. We're in an interview just like that. And we can get right to the objections. Why don't you want to buy? And we're in an instant interview. Now, you might try this before you dismiss this and say that's foolish. But you have clients who buy life insurance from you, who buy other things from you. Maybe you don't have the words to get to the interview. And if you have good rapport with them, just call them up and say, listen, Cogdill, I want to cut to the chase. Why don't you want to buy some disability insurance? Maybe, maybe they say they do. Now, a couple other comments and I'm going to wrap up. Um, I mentioned my dentist client who was shot in the head. Here's the good news and here's the bad news. The good news, since 1992, She's been getting a check every month and will continue to do so. The bad news, back in the day, I didn't have catastrophic, I didn't have retirement funding, and I didn't have critical illness. If I were sitting down with you today to design a program, <clears throat> I like to call it a wealth replacement strategy instead of a disability policy. A disability policy pays me a monthly benefit. That's in the right direction but it falls short. An income replacement strategy looks like this. I'm gonna give you 10 grand a month if you can't do your occupation. A more severe disability requires more money. It's gonna put more stress on your loved ones. So if you need help with activities, or you're cognitively impaired, I'm gonna crank it up to 20,000 a month. <clears throat> if you're disabled at a young age and you don't recover, when you hit retirement age, you will not have any money I am going to fund the equivalent of a 401 plan with a disability retirement policy. So when your disability benefits end, all the money you would have had is there. And my personal um, thing that I like to do is I now attach critical illness to a disability policy. $100,000 of critical illness. So 16 listed critical illnesses, cancer, stroke, heart attack, Upon diagnosis of a disease, I'm going to write you a check for $100,000, whether you're disabled or not. So this is a wealth replacement strategy instead of a disability policy. I want to thank Chris and Michael and everyone who put this together. Um, usually when I'm speaking, I have the ability to look at the audience and know if I'm getting glassy-eyed stares or if this is making any sense. I hope from the bottom of my heart that I've helped everyone listening. Chris, Michael, thank you so much. Erwin, thank you. It made total sense. And again, you and I aren't TV personalities, so it is a little strange looking basically at yourself. Um, one question, and we've got a couple of minutes, so let me ask you this question from a prospecting perspective. And just briefly, in the next three or four minutes here, tell everybody that's out there still listening how you changed markets over your career from one to another and then continue to prospect and be as successful as you widely are before we turn it over to Chris. So back in the days of uh, wanting to get out of this business because it was miserable, I had one goal in 1985. 
I was going to only sell disability insurance to physicians or dentists. You could have been the president of General Motors, called me up in 94, and I would have said, I only do docs, go away. Everybody, by the way, in my life would say, why are you just selling disability insurance? Why aren't you doing pensions? Why are you just selling docs? And I was very myopic. The only thing I did was physicians and dentists. And by the way, I wasn't bright enough or confident enough or connected enough to get referrals. I would get lists of doctors at home. There were no cell phones. There were no do not call lists. I would talk to 25 docs a night, three nights a week. I would take massive rejection and I became wildly successful writing disability insurance, doing what people couldn't do. It's interesting, I was a young guy in those days, I would go to industry meetings and I would ask everyone else what they were doing, looking for the secret, but I already had the secret. The secret was talk to 20, 25 docs a night, 75 docs a week. Now, in 1994, the disability industry caved in. The physicians and dentists that the wholesalers like Cogdell used to take me to dinner and wine and dine me to get my docs. Now they said, Irwin, who else are you selling? We're gonna do payroll deduction for factory workers. They didn't want docs. They had two different problems. There were too many dentists, they weren't making money. That's bad for claims. The physicians who got caught in the crossover were having to work harder, they were having claims. And so the industry caved in. By the way, the defining moment was November of 94, Unum came out with their third quarter earnings. They lost $242 million. That was a lot of money. And that was the first domino. So I reinvented myself um, with, um, today we do a lot of lawyers. We still do physicians and dentists. But the point is, um, I learned from somebody you know Dan Sullivan, the strategic coaches, he said something profound. And any conflict with yourself against the world, back your back the world so i still like physicians and dentists i like attorneys but earlier i said you want to call on people who are making money um so you can apply that however you want to apply it mike did i answer your question yes you did enjoy the weather enjoy chicago uh we'll turn this back over to chris and again from the bottom of my heart thank you very much for participating you're awesome thank you Erwin, I want to echo that. You were just absolutely awesome. And just the, the thing that people overlook if they really want to become a true disability professional is what you said about ERISA. And my challenge is to all of our listeners is that they take a deep dive into truly understanding what you said about ERISA because ignorance is not an excuse when it comes to taking care of your clients. So thanks for pointing that out to us, Erwin, and thank you for your time today. Thank you, guys. Best of luck, everybody.